following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we come to uh, what is in some ways, many, in many ways, really the climax of the Gospel of Matthew, of course, the resurrection. Uh, in, we'll be looking this morning, actually, in uh, Matthew End of chapter 27, starting at verse 62, up through um, verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 15 of chapter 28. So let's uh, begin by reading uh, the scripture together. Next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my, disciples, tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that, they, all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Um, our, our salvation uh, in Christ uh, is really ultimately based on his death on the cross. Uh, we know that by his blood we are saved. Uh, but the effectiveness of Jesus' death and really the full impact and meaning of Jesus' death depends on the resurrection Uh, The resurrection is really the proof or evidence that Jesus' life was sufficient to be a suitable sacrifice for our sin. 
And uh, by rising from the dead, Jesus proves that his death was effective, that he has really overcome death, uh, which was the penalty of sin, and our sins are therefore forgiven. So uh, Jesus' death by itself would not have been enough. It's only in the resurrection that we see his death uh, was powerful and effective. And then so Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have, have perished. If, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So, so Paul says flat out that our, our salvation really uh, has um, its power in the resurrection. If Jesus hasn't been died, it's all meaningless, and our hope is empty, and our faith is, is futile, it's worthless, it's useless if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. So uh, in this account of Jesus uh, rising from the dead is really the whole power of the gospel. Uh, and everything re- rests on this, this incredible truth. Uh, our faith really rests on the power and truth of the, of the resurrection. Um, so if that's all true, then uh, the question we kind of have to ask when we come to uh, the, the accounts of Jesus' resurrection in the gospel, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is why the gospel writers don't make a much bigger deal of the resurrection. Uh, So here, to put it in perspective, if we look at the the whole book of Matthew, it takes Matthew two full chapters to describe Jesus' birth. And they are two full chapters jam-packed with angels and dreams and visions visions, and a virgin uh, who gives birth and wise men from the east and shepherds uh, herding their flocks and a whole multitude of more angels. Uh, announce his birth, right? Then, then there's 23 chapters devoted to Jesus' life and his spectacular miracles and the signs and wonders he performs and uh, his teaching that is profound and deep. Uh, 23 chapters. Then that's followed by two in Matthew by two long chapters describing the events leading up to the cross, leading up to his death. Uh, all that uh, is involved in the betrayal and the abandonment and the uh, really the shame and guilt that Jesus endured, as well as the physical suffering and pain that, uh, that led up to, and including the cross. It, just, it was very public, right? Nobody missed uh, Jesus' uh, death. It was, it was super public. Jesus was crucified on a cross in a place where everybody passed by and saw it. Nobody missed his death, right? But then we get to the resurrection, and the resurrection is described in ten verses. The resurrection only gets one angel. Uh, it's too early in the morning for most people to be awake, and it's in the dark or at sunrise, and, and there are only two real witnesses to the resurrection. Um, and, and so the resurrection is announced and revealed, not in grand terms, not with a huge parade or great events or great uh, multitudes of angels but really in the most uh, humble of terms. And, and the cross is certainly uh, in many, I mean, the resurrection is, is in many ways Jesus' victory over every enemy. Uh, it is his victory over the priests and the Pharisees and the whole Sanhedrin. Right? They, they ridicule Jesus. Jesus, if you are really God, come down off the cross and we, be, we believe you. Well, coming up out of the grave is even better. And yet, 
uh, they miss it. They miss it. And, and, and it seems that, that God or Matthew are together. There's no effort to, to show them uh, the resurrection. Uh, it's almost as if it's hidden, or it's in such humble terms that it's so easily overlooked. Uh, so why is this ultimate victory, this, this ultimate um, overcoming, reported in terms that are so simple and so short and brief and subdued? Uh, it's kind of like winning a gold medal in the 2020 Olympics, right? Uh, you get the medal, uh, but it's presented to you in front of this massive uh, stadium that's empty. And that's kind of the way it is with Jesus. He's, he's won, but uh, he's, he stands on top of the victor's podium before a largely empty stadium. And just two women uh, see it. It just seems not right. And if you watch the Olympics, it's just painful to watch these people who their whole life have been devoted to this one, uh, competing in this one event, and they win, and it's just lonely and sad when they get their medal. And that's kind of what the resurrection feels like when we really consider how it's reported. So what's going on here? Why is it, uh, why is it not announced much like Jesus' birth was? What, what is going on? Let's see if we can answer that as we look through the account. Uh, let's back up a little bit and begin with uh, right after his burial in verse 62. Uh, it says, the next day, after that, that is, after the day of preparation. So Jesus was buried on the day of preparation, which would have been uh, preparing for the Sabbath. So he was crucified on, on a Friday, uh, preparing for the Sabbath on Saturday. Uh, and the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate uh, and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Uh, so um, the uh, enemies of Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees and the, the priests, they remember, interestingly, what Jesus said. And they gather before Pilate uh, to remind him of this promise. Uh, and it's interesting that uh, and sad, actually, that Jesus' enemies actually remember this about Jesus, remember his claims to rise from the dead, uh, more so than his disciples do. And we don't really see the disciples or hear of the disciples anticipating Jesus' resurrection on the third day, uh, but the scribes and Pharisees and priests do. And so they, uh, they take steps to uh, mediate what they perceive could happen. And, <clears throat> and they're, they're really right in describing that... Uh, that if Jesus disappears and his disciples claim resurrection, that that would be far worse than anything that Jesus did during his life. It would be far more damaging to their control and to their, uh, their reputation and actually to the temple and to the worship uh, of Judaism uh, if Jesus rises from the dead. So verse 64, it says, Therefore, uh, they, they tell Pilate, Order the tomb to be made secure, until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And that last fraud will be worse than the first. <clears throat> um, so so the, 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 Jesus' enemies, the Jewish leaders, realize that, um, that getting rid of Jesus isn't actually going to be as easy as they thought. And for most enemies, uh, putting somebody to death is kind of the end of your problem, the end of the troublemaker. But of course, if Jesus is not really a fraud, if he's not really putting out this great deception, if he really is God, if he really is the Messiah, 
putting him to death could be just the beginning of their troubles if, in fact, he uh, rises from the dead, as he said. And so they, again, just as they did to put Jesus on the cross, uh, they plotted and bribed and harassed Pilate in order to have Jesus executed. Now they equally must harass Pilate to uh, secure the tomb, to make sure that Jesus stays in the tomb and that this resurrection, whether by theft or otherwise, does not take place. Um, and uh, they, it's not completely clear why they need a Pilate's permission. There's some debate whether it's Pilate's soldiers that go and secure the tomb or if it's the temple, temple soldiers, temple police that go. It doesn't really matter. But uh, in the end, um, it appears that uh, Pilate says to them, uh, you know, take what you need. Either meaning you have your own guards, go post them, or take my guards. Either way, uh, uh, he, he gives permission. Verse 65, Pilate, Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Right, so they're taking every precaution to make sure uh, the disaster doesn't happen. Uh, and, and, and the problem is if Jesus is a fake, if he is an imposter then a guard will be enough, right? They just have to make sure his body isn't stolen. But if Jesus is the Son of God, uh, if he is not an imposter, if he is everything that he says he is, uh, everything's going to fall apart for the religious leaders. And of course, we know how the story ends. Um, um, so so they, they take this guard, they, they station the, uh, a group of guards at the tomb, and this could have been anywhere from four to eight or maybe more, uh, because of their worries, I'm guessing that they sent as, as big a contingent as they could get away with. They sealed the tomb so that any effort to move the stone would, would break the seal, would prove that it had been tampered with. And all this is designed, ultimately, to prove to the world that if Jesus shows up missing, uh, they could prove that he was stolen, that the guards presumably would have to be, they would have to somehow fight and overcome the guards, uh, to steal the body, they would have to break the seal. And if all that happened, there would be clear proof that, that, that Jesus didn't rise, that he was stolen, right? His body was stolen. Uh, and, and there's really actually more sad irony here when it relates to the disciples. Um, the, the, the enemies of Jesus go to great efforts fearing uh, that the disciples may steal his body, might even... Uh, have some kind of conflict with the guards to steal his body. But in fact, the disciples don't even show up at the tomb, not even to visit. Right? The twelve, or now the eleven, are, are completely absent, both after, after the resurrection on, on Friday night when they bury him. Uh, not one disciple shows up and attends to Jesus' body. It is Joseph of Arimathea, who's actually a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, but who is a secret follower of Jesus, who takes Jesus' body and gets the tomb and gives him an honorable burial. And it is only the women who follow Jesus, uh, not not the eleven. It's these ladies who follow Jesus, who are faithful to him, who are at the tomb watching it on, on that Friday night, and who come to the tomb early on Sunday morning to visit it. Really, the enemies of Jesus had nothing to fear because the disciples are absent completely from Jesus' burial scene. Uh, And that is sad. It's one thing to abandon Jesus on the cross, but it was even worse to 
dishonor him by not taking care of his body in, in death. And we see that even John's disciples came and retrieved his body after John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod, and they buried him. But Jesus' disciples don't even do that, right? Uh, so the, the tomb is secure, uh, it's guarded, it's protected, right? Uh, but then Sunday morning comes, verse 1 of chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, uh, toward, the, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Um, I've called this in my outline a small reveal party. Okay, And if you're from America, I don't know if they do this everywhere in the world, but a thing now is, is uh, if, if a couple is about to have a baby, and they're expecting a new child, and when they find out it's the, the sex, if it's a boy or a girl, they have a, a party to reveal the gender, right? To be, reveal it's a boy or girl. And these parties have become quite elaborate. And people go to all kinds of creative means to, to show uh, uh, their friends and family if it's going to be a boy or a girl. Well, this is kind of a reveal party. And oftentimes we talk about this as actually the resurrection, but this is not, actually not an account of the resurrection. Uh, they come, and, and the angel's job is to reveal or to show that the tube is already empty. So, so the angel's not removing the stone so somehow Jesus can escape or get out, like he resurrected, but he is stuck in the tomb. No, he, he is gone. And, and the whole point of what happens here is not so much on account of the resurrection, because that's already taken place, we don't know when, but it is to reveal to, to the witnesses, to those who come, uh, that he is no longer here, that he is risen just as he said. Uh, and so it's a very simple party, uh, not like the ones that they do uh, now uh, for revealing the sex of a child. It's a small group, uh, but it does start with a bang in that it starts with an earthquake. And the angel comes, and this is really the most um, impressive part of the whole story, is the earthquake that uh, announces really the arrival of the angel. And the angel also has some some. Uh, some impressive features. It says that he shines bright as lightning. So, so this guy, uh, especially in the early pre-dawn, uh, pre-sunrise uh, darkness, uh, a guy blazing light would be hard to miss. Uh, and his clothes were pure white. And in the day before bleach was invented, it was hard to get things truly pure white. But this guy was pure white, and not only was he pure white, but he was radiating light like lightning. Uh, and we know uh, when there's a flash of lightning on a dark night, it just lights up everything. So it's, it's, it's uh, unmistakable that this guy is not just a, a human who's dressed up. This is, this is an angelic being. But he's all by himself, right? There's no choir of angels. There's no team of angels. There's no squad of angels. It's just one lonely angel. Uh, and he comes... Uh, and his job is to move away the stone. And uh, the archaeologists know from digging up many of the stone tombs, actually in the region where Jesus was buried, that uh, it would have been a large, as, as we see in the pictures, a large round stone or disc that sat in a groove. And the groove was actually at a little bit of an angle, so that closing the tomb was pretty easy, 
Uh, you could just remove the wedge and it would kind of roll itself into place. But opening the tomb was, was much more difficult. And uh, in, in the typical tomb, one person couldn't have moved it by himself. It would take at least two strong men to roll the, the stone back up the incline channel to open the door to the tomb. But of course, this is a supernatural being, uh, and he has no problem uh, opening the tomb so that there's access, again, not so that Jesus can get out, but to show that the tomb is empty, that the resurrection has already taken place. Uh, and there's two witnesses, all right? Uh, and again, there's not more witnesses. There's only two. So one lonely angel, two witnesses, two, two Marys. Um, and they go early, early dawn, so probably before the sun says toward dawn. So the idea is it's probably still dark. Uh, maybe just the very first light. Not even sunrise yet. Right? So it's not a time when people are awake or up. It chooses a time when, uh, when it, the world is still largely asleep and quiet. But these two Marys go to the tomb uh, to see it. Uh, And they are not expecting it to be uh, open. They're not expecting Jesus to be resurrected. They're just going to see the tomb, uh, to be there, to be near Jesus, to grieve and to mourn over his death. Um, And and it's sad that that there are no of the eleven, right? That they are not there. And certainly they were afraid of arrest. They were afraid... uh, that they too could be crucified as Jesus' followers, so they are in hiding. But really, uh, who would have known if they had come in the early pre-dawn hours of darkness, right? Uh, who, who would have known if they had come and, and at a safe distance just observed the tomb? But they're not there. Um, uh, and, and some charge that in, in, in the dark, in the early morning, they're, they're, uh, critics of, of the resurrection have said, well, you know, the Marys, they showed up at the wrong tomb, and of course it was an empty because they went to a tomb that hadn't been used yet. Uh, is it possible that they went to the wrong tomb? Well, it's not likely. They, these were intelligent women. They weren't stupid. And uh, tombs in that day, especially a wealthy tomb like Joseph of Arimathea would have had, were decorated. Right? So they weren't all look, looking the same. There would have been distinctive features or marks about this tomb. And even the landscape around would have had uh, uh, indicators that would have made it unique, right? So it's not likely that they went to the wrong tomb, but let's say they did. Let's say they were confused and they went to the wrong tomb and it was an empty tomb that hadn't been used yet, and lo and behold, they, uh, they didn't find Jesus there, and so they fabricate this story. Well, if that's true, then there's a couple problems. One, it means the guards were also guarding and had sealed the wrong tomb, right? Because uh, they seal it shut, so, uh, so if they found a tomb that was uh, the wrong one, the guards were also guarding the wrong tomb. Uh, and, and later, when they reported back to the, uh, the, the Jewish leaders that the bodies disappeared, they still got to account for how, how a tomb with a stone that had been sealed, uh, when they rolled the tomb back, is now, uh, the stone back is now empty. Right? And on top of that, out of all the people involved with Jesus' uh, execution, all the soldiers, all the Romans, all the guards, if, if they really didn't have the wrong tomb, certainly somebody would have gone to the right tomb and said, well, hey, he's still here, right? Uh, it's hard to imagine that all the people involved got the tomb wrong, okay? Uh, so really, uh, that's, that's a, a foolish argument that, that doesn't hold. 
But what's significant here, and what, the, what Matthew points out, is that, uh, is that the only two witnesses who really uh, inspect the tomb on its reveal, when it's opened up, are two women. Right? Not the disciples, not even the guards, because by this point, the guards panic, they, they pass out. And so even, even the guards miss some of the most important features of the revelation, uh, of the revealing, of the un- unveiling of the empty tomb. Now, of course, uh, I'm sure when they do come to, uh, the angel may have been gone, uh, maybe even the women were gone, but certainly they went and inspected the tomb, <coughs> and they at very least could verify that it was empty. <coughs> um, so what you have here, as the two first and primary witnesses to the res- resurrection, are two women. Now I'm not trying to uh, uh, say anything bad about ladies. I believe ladies' eyes work just as good as men's, and their testimony is just as good as men's. But in Jesus' day, in this time period, uh, women were not generally considered to be a credible witness. Oh, thank you. We're not generally considered to be credible witnesses. And in, in a court of law, their testimony was normally not allowed. And, and uh, to me, uh, in my thinking, I'm like, you know, if you really want to prove this, if you really want to make a good case and make it convincing, the guys who really need to be convinced are the guards, right? Why, why does... Why does God knock them out? Right? Why do they pass out? Verse 4, for fear of him, the guards tremble and became like dead men. Like, really, these were to be the, the most reliable witnesses because they were skeptics, right? They were not followers of Jesus. Uh, why doesn't God reveal the empty tomb to them in a way that's convincing, right? Or better yet, why doesn't Jesus appear to them? Like, imagine if they had gone back to the, uh, the religious leaders and say, we know he rose from the dead because we saw him. Not just the empty tomb. He wasn't stolen. We saw him alive. Like, that would be convincing proof. Uh, how much more, how, how much better uh, the gospel account would be if that's what it said, right? If it said, oh, and the, the, Jesus appeared to Mary and Mary and the, and the soldiers, and they all gathered around and hugged him and said, uh, as, the, as the soldiers did at the cross, behold, this surely is the Son of God. But no, they're passed out asleep, right? Uh, so, so it's like I said, uh, Jesus rose, and, and, and the angel comes, and his job is to reveal it. The empty tomb clearly is empty, and it's revealed that Jesus has, has risen, um, and the women are there as, as clear witnesses of it. Uh, but it's kind of like getting a gold medal at the 2020 Olympics, right? Uh, Jesus wins, but it happens in a mostly empty stadium with no credible audience or witnesses to tell about it. Well, it continues on. Verse 5, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Uh, He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Uh, so the women do not need to fear, and I, I love that the women are not only more brave than the disciples, but they apparently are uh, uh, much stronger than the, than the guards, right? And so they're the only one left standing, and uh, the angel speaks to them and says, Don't be afraid, I know you come seeking Jesus, but he is not here. 
He has already risen. Come see for yourself. So first they, they, he invites them to come see, and he opens the tomb, and that was the whole point to go, for them to go in and see that Jesus is gone. Right? His body is not there. And then he says in verse 7, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, or see, I have told you. Uh, so they're given this, uh, uh, this instruction to go and tell the disciples, right? And to go to, and to tell the disciples not only that the tomb is empty, but that Jesus has risen from the dead, right? Uh, and I love that picture. Uh, the, the disciples, even though uh, their, their absence has been so noticeable from the whole crucifixion through his burial and even now in his resurrection, even though they are AWOL, nowhere to be found, yet Jesus wants to make sure they know the good news. And uh, Mary and Mary, these two women, are the messengers of this great news. Um, and so in verse 8, So they depart quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and run, ran to tell his disciples. And behold, and uh, in, in Matthew, especially in this account, the beholds are, are like exclamation marks. Behold, watch out, look, see what happens next. Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. I love it. Jesus doesn't just call them his followers, his disciples. He says, Go and tell my brothers uh, to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. What we see here is these two women, as they are on the path of faith, and on the path of obedience to do what they've been told, they encounter the risen Christ. Right? They go with fear and joy, fear at what they have seen, fear of the angel, fear of the craziness of this whole thing of, of the power of God that would raise Jesus back to life. But also with joy, joy that Jesus is alive, joy that he has overcome the grave and sin and death, and joy that they will uh, one day see him again with that hope. Um, uh, but, it, but then on their way, as they're uh, walking in faith and in obedience, uh, it says, Jesus appears. Jesus met them. Jesus himself revealed himself to them in a way that they could not miss. And it says that Jesus uh, appears, and, and he says to them, greetings. Um, basically, Jesus says, hey, <laughs> hi, hello, uh, and, and he is physical, he is visible, he is in a body, it's not just a ghost or a spirit. And they run up and they hear his voice and they see him with their eyes and they can touch him because he is a living, resurrected body, not just a ghost or a spirit. Right? Uh, and and, the, and the, the great truth of this whole story is that this becomes the greatest proof of the resurrection. Right? It's not the empty tomb. It's not did they get the right tomb or the wrong tomb. It's not did the guards know what happened or didn't know what happened. For Mary and Mary, there's no proof they could compare with seeing Jesus. Right? Uh, after that, they needed no proof because they had encountered the living, resurrected Christ face to face in real life. And there's no proof they could possibly compare with that. 
right? And, and I think in this is one of the great answers of why Scripture doesn't build a better case for the resurrection, right? Why there's not more witnesses, why there's not more angels, why there's not more proof, right? The reason is because um, when you've seen, when you have encountered the living Jesus, you don't need proof, right? You don't need anything else. Um, it's when you have met him, when you have seen him, when you have confronted him, uh, that's all the proof you need. It certainly was enough proof for Mary and Mary. But you say, well, okay, that worked for them because they got to see him. They actually got to touch his body. He appears to the disciples, and we know he invites even Thomas, who was the great doubter, to touch his hands, his nail-scarred hands, and see his wounded side, right? to verify that it was not just a resurrected being, but it was the Jesus who was crucified. But you remember what Jesus says to Thomas. He said, blessed are those who believe without seeing, right? We may not encounter Jesus with our physical eyes. We may not see his resurrected body. We may not be able to touch him like the disciples did and like Mary did. Uh, but the truth is that we can still encounter Jesus in a way that is very real. Paul writes about it this way in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 17. And it's actually Paul's prayer. He says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your, in your inner being. So that's a big mouthful, but he's praying there that, that uh, those that he's praying for would get kind of a, a remodel job inside. He said, your heart, your spirit, your inner being is weak. It's not strong enough. So I'm praying that you receive power through the Holy Spirit to fortify, to build up your soul, your heart, your inner man. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Right? And that's the amazing thing. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, when we seek Him as Lord, uh, He reveals Himself to us, not just in a vision, not just in a dream, not just in a quick, quick bodily appearance, but it says that He actually comes and sets up His dwelling, His permanent living place in our hearts through faith. Right? And so we may not be able to see Him with our physical eyes, but it's true that if we, if we seek Jesus, if we put our faith in him, he is in us and with us in a way that is real and tangible, that we know through our, uh, the inner experience of our heart and our mind, right? Uh, he is there. Uh, so so, so, um, so that, that's really the heart of what's here, right? Uh, those who know him, those who have met him, the no further proof of the resurrection. Well, the story doesn't end here. It goes on uh, uh, kind of a sandwich, with starting with the guards at the tomb and starting with the guards at the tomb after the resurrection. And so in verse 11 it says, While they were going, that is, the women, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that, they had, all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel together, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
All right, so here, here's the principle. Let's get back to the first question I raised at the beginning. Uh, why is the resurrection reported in such simple and humble terms? Right? Why are there so few witnesses? Why is the evidence so, um, so small, as if it's almost kept a secret? Well, I think the answer is this. When we look at these scriptures, when we look at, at what Mary and eventually the disciples experience, uh, and what later followers of Christ are promised to experience as they, uh, the living Christ comes and lives in them, when we compare that with, with how the rest of the world experiences the resurrection, uh, the guards, the, the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? how they experience, how they encounter the same set of evidence, because they also had the empty tomb. But they still could go and examine the place, and they could check that it was the right tomb or the wrong tomb. They could go examine that it was empty. Right? When we look at these two, two things, it's, this is the answer we get. It is clear when we look at how the resurrection is presented, how it's revealed, how it's unfolded, that it is really actually much like his birth and his teachings and his messianic role and his divine character and nature as God incarnate. And actually even the meaning and purpose of his death. Right? The resurrection and all those things of who Jesus is and what he has done uh, are clearly visible only to those who see it through the eyes of faith. Right? To those who seek him. And not just seek him, but those who seek him as Lord. Right? It was only those who were seeking the Messiah who got to see Jesus at his birth and, and understand with revelation who he really was. It was only those who were truly seeking Jesus that saw the importance and meaning of his miracles or who really understood uh, his parables and his teaching. It was only in time that those who sought Jesus came to understand the purpose and meaning of his death, why the cross was necessary. And it's only those who seek him as Lord who will ever see him risen. It's only those who seek him as Lord who ever see him risen. But for those who have rejected him, whatever evidence is given to them is quickly dismissed and turned aside. Right? Um, if any group of people should have believed in the resurrection, it should have been the guards. right? Because the guards were on duty that whole time and they knew they had not been asleep. They knew that that stone was sealed shut. They, they, they knew that no one came and stole him away. Right? And they even saw the angel, even though they passed out as a result. They saw the angel, the supernatural being, who was not just an ordinary person, who rolled the stone away all by himself. Right? Uh, if anybody should have believed, it should have been them. But even in, in the face of all that first-hand evidence and proof, uh, it wasn't enough for them to believe. Why? Because they would not have Jesus be Lord. And even the, the Jewish leaders, right, uh, for them too, uh, it, it doesn't say that, well, you guards must have been confused. You guards surely must have fallen asleep. No, they knew that the guards had been awake. But they rejected the evidence because for them they would not have Jesus be Lord. And so all the evidence in the world uh, could not change their mind. Right? 
And, and Paul talks about that again in Romans. Um, that, uh, that the truth of the gospel remains a mystery to those who are lost. He says in Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And only can they not please God, they can't know him. Right? No matter how much evidence there is, no matter how much God reveals himself, their hearts are hardened and they will not have it. But to those who seek him, to those who acknowledge Jesus as Lord, they will encounter the resurrected and living Lord and that's the only proof they need. Right? And it's not that there's not proof in Scripture. There is enough evidence here that we know it's a truth, right? There were witnesses. There was the empty tomb. There was an angel. Uh, there's the reality and truth that nobody could ever come up with Jesus' body uh, to prove other than the resurrection. Um, but to those who... Uh, and, and, uh, and God is faithful, right? God is faithful that those who seek him will know will know beyond doubt that Jesus is resurrected. He is living uh, and seated on high. Uh, but there's even a, a, a cooler truth that comes out of this, right? Um, we we kind of diss on the disciples. We kind of uh, have to look at how, how terribly they failed Jesus, right? They failed in the garden. Uh, Peter failed in the courtyard of the high priest when he said, I don't even know Jesus, right? He denied he even knew him. They all failed in abandoning Jesus and never even showing up at the cross. Uh, not even watching from a distance like the women did. They failed in that they didn't help bury Jesus. They didn't tend to his body to give him an honorable death, uh, an honorable burial after his death. And then they don't come to visit him. They don't come to see the tomb. But in spite of all that, uh, I love what Jesus says and what the angel says. But, but Jesus himself says, go and tell my brothers that I will go ahead of them and I will meet them in Galilee. And of course we know that actually they get to see the resurrected Jesus even before they get to Galilee. Um, but the idea is that Galilee is the place that they will do work and where, where they will do ministry, right? And Jesus will go ahead of them. And so the great principle is this, that to those who seek Jesus as Lord... But even those who seek him but have failed in following him, Jesus will reveal himself. Right? The resurrected Lord will make himself known. Like they don't miss out because they sought him as Lord and they acknowledged him as Lord, but they failed him as followers does not disqualify him. And, and, and that is great news for us, right? right? What matters is that we seek and we acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Um, it doesn't matter how well we follow him or how faithful we are or perfect we are in always following him. And that's because his revelation, his showing us himself, his revelation of the truth of the resurrection and the truth of the cross isn't dependent on our goodness. It's not dependent on how well we do as followers. But it is dependent on his grace uh, and his goodness in showing himself to us. Right? That's why it is by faith, not by evidence. 
Right? We grab hold of the gospel and we celebrate the resurrection. We know it's true because we have eyes of faith to trust it's true and to trust Jesus. Not because of the burden of proof. But then there's bad news too, right? The good news is that God makes it clear. He reveals the resurrection to all who acknowledge him as Lord, even those who fail in following him. But the last piece of it is this, that for those who reject him, even what evidence and proof they get is too easily discarded and thrown away and ignored. Right? Uh, uh, the guards report to the priests and the Pharisees, but the guards themselves uh, will not believe what they've just seen. Right? The, the, the priests and the Pharisees will not believe what they have seen. Uh, they see it all as a lie, and Jesus only as a great imposter and deceiver. And, and they will not have it any other way. Uh, what's ironic in all of this, actually, is that the Jewish leaders had put the guards there, they posted them there, uh, to prove that if the body was stolen, it wasn't a resurrection. But the irony in this whole thing is because they posted the guards there, because they sealed the tomb, because they were there as witnesses, what the guards actually do now is they actually prove that he wasn't stolen. Right? What they had posted to actually prove... Uh, it was a fake, actually now proves that Jesus is exactly what he said. Right? They actually become the greatest proof of all because um, they can't lie. They can't make up a story. They can't say, look, we were asleep. Right? Because they know they were awake and they know what happened. So the whole thing backfires on them. But even in spite of all of that, they will not consider the possibility that Jesus really was uh, the Son of God, the Messiah, who died for their sins and rose again. Uh, and what's uh, uh, crazy in this story is that it turns out because Jesus is not a fraud, uh, the account of Jesus' resurrection ends with the deception of the Pharisees, right? the deception of the Jewish leaders. And he said he, they, they pay money, they bribe the guards to go out and lie and spread a deception, to spread falsehood, to say, oh, the disciples just came and stole his body. Right? Um, in the end, it turns out that they are the ones who are the greatest frauds and imposters, not Jesus. Well, so that's, that's really what this is about. And it's really the message of the gospel. But the gospel uh, is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. But for those who are lost, it is foolishness. Right? To those of the world, it is just foolishness. Uh, it takes the eyes of faith to really see who Jesus is and to see the meaning and purpose of the cross and to see the truth of the resurrection. All of it can be perceived and understood only through eyes of faith that acknowledge Jesus as Lord of all creation and Lord over our life and those who, uh, who seek him and seek to worship him. Uh, and that's a wonderful truth. And, and it's the mystery of God. And I don't know why he doesn't make it so that everybody can see it. 
But it's clearly God's purpose, right? He has not chosen uh, to save all. He has not chosen to redeem everyone. Uh, He's chosen to redeem those whose eyes are open uh, by his spirit and by faith. Uh, So that's that's the truth, I think, uh, in the shortness and brevity and simplicity of of the account of the resurrection and its revelation. But there's something that's kind of uh, disappointing in this, right? Um, Jesus has won the greatest victory over every enemy and ultimately over sin and Satan and death itself. It is something that deserves celebration. It is something that cries out and screams out uh, not to be celebrated in an empty stadium, but to be celebrated uh, before the world with great joy and rejoicing. Mary and Mary felt that when Jesus appeared, they couldn't help but go and grab hold of him and worship and celebrate his resurrection. And, and when we celebrate Easter and when we, when we re- recount the resurrection, there's something in us that says, this needs to be celebrated, right? But the, the truth of the gospel is also this, that, that it will be celebrated. There will be a great parade. There will be a great revelation But it is not now, it is at Jesus' second coming. It is at his return. When Jesus comes back, uh, he will come back as the victor over all. And there will be a party in heaven uh, like we can't imagine. That's the picture of Revelation, of celebrating uh, the lion and the lamb. And it will be an incredible day of celebration. Uh, John talks about it in 1 John uh, chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Right? There's that great truth. They're blinded. And they miss Jesus in spite of all the scriptures tell about him. Right? They did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Okay, so here's the great celebration. Not only are we going to celebrate what what Jesus has accomplished, but there will come a day when when we it will it will become evident who we really are in Christ, the fullness of who we are in Christ. Right? What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him fully as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's what we have to look forward to. A day of incredible celebration, not only of Jesus' resurrection and his overcoming, but also of his work in us that makes us fully like him. We shall see the fullness of Jesus in his glory. And we will ourselves share in that glory and we will worship and celebrate him together for all eternity. Uh, That is our great hope, John says. Um, But in the meantime, what do we do? Well, in the meantime, we celebrate. We are a people who still celebrate Jesus. And maybe uh, it's like the Olympics, maybe we're celebrating a handful of people in a big auditorium and it gets lost. 
But we are a people who celebrate him, right? And every Sunday, that's one of our, our, our real focus and our hopes is that we will gather together as the body of Christ, whether we're all in one room or we're gathering together at the same moment in time, but in many different places, that we want to celebrate with joy a resurrected Jesus who has conquered death and conquered the grave. And so we celebrate him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are victorious. Uh, You are victorious because of the cross. Uh, The cross really was your great glory where you dealt with uh, Satan and sin and the curse of death by paying fully its penalty. But Lord, we also celebrate uh, the victory of, of the resurrection. You proved and demonstrated the effectiveness of the cross uh, by overcoming death and rising from the dead and living never to die again in your resurrected body. And that you are now seated at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling on high. Lord Jesus, we look forward to your return. Uh, We long for it. We long for the day when you will reveal himself to the world. And everyone will know that you are Lord and King and Messiah. But until that day, Lord, we pray that you will help us to be a people who diligently seek your face. Uh, who are the kind of people who have been strengthened by your spirit in our inner being so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. And we would know and encounter the living Jesus in our very heart and in our very life as we commune and fellowship with you. And Lord, we want to do it not only privately, but together as your body, as the church, to join our voices and our hearts and our minds in celebrating you. So with with, with one heart and with one voice, we may glorify you together. And Lord, it's hard as we are all separated and in different places. Lord, help us even right now as we worship you to to come together in spirit and to lift up uh, praise as a worthy offering to you, uh, proclaiming Jesus is alive, uh, that he is risen, and we wait his return. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.